Thank you very much for that. So a few months ago, I mentioned that if anyone had any subjects or questions or things they'd like us to teach on here at Cana, just to ask, and we'll do our best to get to them. Can I borrow this one? And so, so far we've got a few, we've, we've got a few requests. One was, someone wants to know about the fruits of the Spirit. So starting in May, we're actually going to take on the book of Galatians so that we can learn all about the fruits of the Spirit. And another one came in the form of a question, and for the next couple weeks, we're going to try to explore that question. Rich and I are going to explore this in the form of a debate. In the past, some of you may have been there when we've done point-counterpoints, but point-counterpoints were slightly different. They were designed to really explore opposite sides of an issue. So we purposely took opposite sides of an issue, studied it, and then argued those opposite sides, whether or not we actually um, were in that camp or not. But this time we decided, instead of point-counterpoint, we would simply use the format of a debate in which we both answer the same questions. Because at some level, just doing it that way, in part, answers the question. Because there's such a degree of nuance to what people believe. And whenever you're in an environment like this, whether it's church, whether it's a conference, whether it's class at, at, in school or teaching, there's a whole bunch of things going on. First of all, you have what the speaker says, and then you have what the speaker means. Then you have what people hear the speaker say, and then you have what people think the speaker means, and then that's true for every single person in the audience. Because they all hear maybe the same words, but they all hear something different. You see what I mean? So there's so much nuance in this. And what people believe, think, hear, understand, etc. So even though Rich and I might agree on some truth, we might have slightly different takes or massively different takes on what it means or how it is applied. So therefore, we thought this would be a great format. And we're excited also. Rich and I always talk about this. I mean, we've been in a lot of churches in our... He's an old man now. He's over 50, so he is like ancient. And we've been in a lot of churches in our life, and yeah, I, I don't know of any churches that are just willing to open up to debate and talk about different opinions and different theologies and different ideas. So we're excited about it. And by full disclosure, please know we've not seen each other's answers. So this really is not choreographed at all like the point counterpoints were. I don't know what Rich is going to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. Now, we're not going to quite do it like a debate. We're not going to stand here and yell at each other and interrupt each other and scream at the moderators, etc. Et we're not. We're all sitting there. Okay? Speak for yourself. Well, yeah. well, but what we're going to do, uh, Rich won the joint costume. He's going to go first. He's going to share his his thoughts on, on it, and then I'm going to go, and maybe next week if we want to try to uh, sort of push back on each other's thoughts, we will, or we'll just go on to the next part. So, the question came from Chad and Ball, why doesn't Cana Community Church talk about the conviction of sin? You're up. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> no, there's no, nom there's no nominations at, at stake here, so that's good. Well, I think uh, it'll be a rather short sermon, because after he hears my talk, I think he'll just say, yeah, I agree, and we'll be go from there. You get all the delegates. <laughs> so, before we dive into that particular question, uh, I want us to back up a little bit and explore what the conviction of sin is and where it comes from. And just to review what we had just read a minute ago... You've been sabotaged. 
should work. There you go. There. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples in John 16. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of the meaning of sin, of true goodness, and of judgment. He will expose their sin because they do not believe in me. He will reveal true goodness, for I am going away to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And he will show them the meaning of judgment, for the spirit which rules this world will have been judged. That's actually the, the Philip's uh, uh, paraphrased version. Clearly, according to Jesus, one of the principal jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict you and I of sin. To bring us to the point where we can speak the words of the psalmist in Psalm, Psalm uh, 51.4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This deep, profound awareness of our sin is essential to understanding the Christian faith. For grace makes little sense at all if I don't understand for my need for that grace in the first place. Or to put it another way, grace is only amazing when I realize that God saved a wretch like me. It's just like a cure for Ebola. Living here in central Massachusetts with no exposure to, to the disease, a bottle of pills that would cure it means little to me. But if I or someone I love were living in Guinea right now and contracted it, then that bottle of pills would be the most precious thing on earth. The value we place in something is always based on our perceived need. And that's why the value we place in grace is based on our perceived need for it. Oswald Chambers uh, summarizes it well when he says, Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life when he, is when he says that and he means it. Anything less is simply sorrow for having made foolish mistakes. The entrance into the kingdom of God is through the sharp, sudden pains of repentance colliding with man's respectable goodness. Then the Holy Spirit, who produces these struggles, begins the formation of the Son of God in the person's life. And then Charles Spurgeon adds to that, God never clothes man until he has first stripped them, or stripped them. Nor does he quicken them by the gospel till they are first slain by the law. So when we look at the conviction of sin, there's a couple starting points. First is that awareness of sin and our need for grace is a fundamental part of the gospel. And then secondly, that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate source of that conviction. The logical question then becomes, if the Holy Spirit is the source of our conviction, how does that play out in our lives? Does the Holy Spirit work silently in our hearts? Or does he also work in other ways? Because the Holy Spirit is the source for our conviction, one line of thinking uh, is that it should be the Holy Spirit alone who does that convicting work in our lives. That we will hear this still small voice in our hearts and be convicted by it. And that certainly does happen. Without ever exchanging a word with, with anyone else, we can become convicted of a sin, confess it, and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to bring about a change of heart. But is that the only way in which the Holy Spirit works? Consider for a minute some of the other ministries of the Holy Spirit as parallels. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit brings someone to conversion. But the church still has a key role in sharing the gospel to get someone to that point. Scripture also says that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf in prayer. 
But the, ch- the church still has a critical role in interceding for each other. Why else do we have an email prayer list that, that we, you know, uh, that we get that we're on, and we we get prayer requests each week to pray for each other about? So the Holy Spirit is charged with these works according to Scripture, but He involves the church as partners in these ministries. And so when we look specifically at the conviction of sin, if we look at at Scripture, we can see that the church in all its various forms has always had a role in making people aware of their sin. Take the Old Testament prophets. I mean, I could use hundreds of examples uh, here, but I'll leave it to one for the sake of time. God told Isaiah in Isaiah 58.1, Cry loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet, and declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sins. Moving on to the New Testament, we have John the Baptist. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus himself, he didn't shy away from talking about the conviction of sin. Just two examples in Matthew 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven has come near. And then he says in Mark, The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. The apostles continued in this way. Uh, In Acts 8, uh, Apostle Peter says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. But perhaps Paul gives the most explicit descriptive example when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7. And he says, For although my letter had hurt you, I don't regret it now. As I did, I must confess at one time. I can see that the letter did upset you, though only for a time, and now I'm glad I sent it. Not because I want to hurt you, but because it made you grieve for things that were wrong. In other words, the result was to make you sorry as God would have had you sorry, not merely to make you offended by what we said. The sorrow which God uses means a change of heart and leads to salvation. It is the world's sorrow, or guilt, that is such a deadly thing. You can look back now and see how the hand of God was in that sorrow. That's why preachers over the ages have voiced similar words as Charles Spurgeon when he said, There must be true and deep conviction of sin, and this the preacher must labor to produce, for where this is not felt, the new birth has not taken place. Via. Besides being an Italian restaurant over on Shrewsbury Street, (laughs) it's a common word that means by the way of, or by means of. And we use that word all the time. Last month, I flew on Aer Lingus Airlines to Milan via Dublin, or I sent Justy a photo via Facebook Messenger. So when we speak of via, the means matters less than the ultimate result. So on my trip to Italy, Aer Lingus took me through Dublin, but all I really cared about was getting to Milan. Or when I sent Justy a photo, I used Facebook Messenger, but really I could have just as you easily used text, email, Slack, or several other uh, social media devices to get that to him. Facebook Messenger was just one tool I had in my disposal to get the job done. The church throughout history, from the Old Testament to the New Testament church to the medieval and modern times, has always played that via role in carrying out the work of the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to dive just a little bit deeper into that. The church is a fundamental part in the life of a believer. 
And I don't think you can read the New Testament without recognizing that there is this deep mystery between the community of the body of Christ and an individual believer. God desires a personal relationship with each of us, but he wants us to live out a life of faith in deep community with each other. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, Jesus works on us in all sorts of ways, through nature, through our own bodies, through books, but above all, he works on us through each other. Men are mirrors or carriers of, of Christ to other men. That's why the church plays a holistic role in the, high, in the life of a believer. To nourish, to encourage, support, come alongside, to love, equip, challenge, and convict. Once again, let's turn to C.S. Lewis. He says, it's so easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects. Education, building, missions, holding services. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, and even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. How then does the church make us into little Christs? Here's, I, I would suggest it's through the holistic ministries of the church. So when the church nourishes, our faith gets deeper. When it encourages and supports, we're built up. When it comes alongside us, we overcome in our battles. When it loves, we deepen our understanding of God's love for us. When it equips, we are empowered. When it challenges us, we grow. And when it convicts us, we see a reality that we would be otherwise prone to ignore. Each of these activities help transform us bit by bit into little Christs. But mischief. The problem is the church has always had this age-old tendency to taking this charge and running with it, getting it carried away with it. And perhaps we can think of this in, in this context with, best expressed with the term fire and brimstone. It's that fire and brimstone mentality that causes the church to have a singular mission, to scare the hell out of people. Years ago, I went to a church, and for about a nine-month period, all the congregation here, week after week after week, was how miserable we were, how we deserved hell, and that sort of thing. Now, not that there wasn't truth to that, but there was so much emphasis on sin that the church had completely missed talking about the good news, the rest of the story. The pastor had this misguided notion that any talk of grace would just cause us to ignore our sin altogether and think lightly of it. But the end, re end result was that we would just end up feeling beat up week after week after week. So that's one extreme. Churches that focus so much on sin that they end up de-emphasizing the message of grace in the process. They've forgotten the good news. The problem is that some churches, in trying to correct that mistake overcorrect and end up talking never talking about the conviction of sin at all. Instead the aim is an unabashedly positive message. The rationale is that people are being beaten up all week, so the focus should be to build them up when they come through the doors of the church. And from the little I know of him, Joel Stein seems to be a poster child for that uh, theology. But this other extreme is unhealthy as well, watering down the message of the gospel and grace in the process. Cheap grace, to use the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It cheapens grace because there's no apparent need for it. 
author blogger Rachel Held Evans wrote a blog post talking about her frustration between these two extremes. And she wrote, while there is much I love and appreciate about mainline denominations when I visit, I always end up feeling like something's missing. I miss that evangelical fire in the belly that makes people talk about their faith with passion and conviction. I miss sermons that step on a few toes. While evangelical pastors may care too little about who they offend, mainline pastors may care too much to the point that they are afraid to say anything of substance. While young people may be afraid to share their doubts and questions in evangelical churches for fear of judgment and condemnation, they may be just as afraid to share their doubts and questions in mainline churches because no one seems to be talking about those issues. So this brings us back to our initial question that we started out with. I'm going to slightly rephrase it. Should Cana talk about the conviction of sin? I would suggest that yes, we should, because it's part of that holistic ministry of the church. Conviction by the Holy Spirit over sin in our life is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. When understood properly and not given to either of these two extremes, it helps me understand who I am and who God is and why we need this amazing thing called grace in the first place. Blogger Jessica Miller-Kelly expressed this well when she wrote, Preaching about sin gets a bad rap because of how depressing and manipulative it can be. Poorly done, sin sermons take people to the edge of despair so they accept Jesus as fire insurance during a moment of heightened emotion. Rather than, than creating that feeling of woe right there in the pew, helping people face their sin honestly and personally opens the door for deeper reflection, true repentance, and ongoing refinement. At Cana, we never spoon-feed theology or anything else for that matter. We love to wrestle with the issues even when they're raw. In fact, as David said just a minute ago, how many other churches would have the courage to offer different views on a topic from the pulpit like we're doing here this morning? But that's why I believe that the conviction of sin needs to be part of the ongoing church conversation here. Because without it, we can become stunted in our growth. If we can't talk about these things in the intimacy of this room, then I think we're the poorer as a result. It's like getting into shape physically. If we never push our bodies to the point of discomfort, we never achieve the results we want. But we have to handle that discomfort in a couple important ways. First, any talk of conv conviction of sin should be built on the foundation of grace, plain and simple. It, that should, book, it should be bookended by grace. Second, we need to have that same balanced perspective as, as the Apostle Paul did in writing to the Corinthians. And I just want to bring up that, that uh, scripture reference that I uh, had shared just a minute ago, because I think it's, it reveals a lot. And he, and he says, I can see that the letter did upset you, though only for a time, and now I'm glad I sent it. Not because I want to hurt you, but because it made you grieve for things that were wrong. In other words, the result was to make you sorry as God would have had you sorry and not merely to make you offended by what we said. You can look back now and see how the hand of God was in that sorrow. Now you see how Paul was pained on confronting the Corinthians. You can see he was going back and forth in his mind if he should even uh, bring this up, the tension there. So Paul understood that tension between lovingly calling out the Corinthians and then showing them, and showing them, showering them with grace. And I think we need that same sense of tension in dealing with these sorts of issues. 
Perhaps Puritan pastor Richard Baxter had the best perspective of all when he spoke to his congregation. He said, I speak as a dying man to dying men. When we have that proper perspective on reality, we'll never shy away from a deep awareness of the sin in our lives, but at the same time, the wonderful, amazing grace and love offered by our Savior. <laughs> that was the strategy. You just take up all the time. Rich, great job. Thank you. David, you forgot about the orange wig. The orange wig, yeah. Well, he didn't talk about building the wall, so I don't have to really deal too much with Rich. Rich, great job. Thank you for that. I'm going to jump ahead here. So just give me two seconds because I don't want to be redundant. And with the time left, I don't want to get to where I want. So just give me two seconds here. So, I'm going to say right off that I would argue, and by the way, no one needs to feel bad about Chatham, because I have a lot of one-to-one talks with Chatham, so don't feel bad if if it sounds like, wow, you came down on Chatham. No, I'm not coming down on Chatham. So, I would argue right off the bat that Cana always talks about the conviction of sin. Always. And has for eight years. In fact, the very first sermon I gave at Cana, for those of you who are here, was all about the sin of not forgiving others. We looked at Teeny Swad, Teeny Swad. We looked at Sweeney Todd. We looked at Sweeney Todd's movie and how it's a perfect illustration of when we refuse to forgive others, we end up in a prison of hate and bitterness and lost until it eventually comes out in anger and violence and hatred. So I would argue that we always talk about it, but we try to talk about sin and the conviction of sin here at Cana in the way I believe Jesus did and in the way I believe the Holy Spirit goes about his work. And so like Rich said, if he uses us to help him with his work, which is tricky when certain things Holy Spirit is supposed to do, but I, I agree that there is a level that we are the via through which the Holy Spirit gets things done, but that's what we try to do here at Cana. So... First, I'm going to give an illustration about what I mean, and then I'll try to explain what I mean. This is Van Gogh's very famous Sunflowers 3rd edition. This misses the mark by miles. Misses the mark is another way to define sin. That's what the original word means. You miss the mark. So I can stand here and I can tell you everything that's wrong with that picture. You'll almost get it. Some of you might, some of you won't, because some of you love black and white. You'd be like, that's great. Why, would, why are you telling me it misses the mark? Because it misses the mark by a mile. Here is Van Gogh's famous Sunflowers 3rd edition. Straightforward, right? It's very simple. The second you see what Van Gogh's Sunflowers 3rd edition looks like, you know everything that's wrong with this. And there is no way I could have ever convinced you of what it should look like simply by pointing out that it shouldn't look like this. None. So, by showing you what the painting should look like, it's a much more powerful and lasting 
revelation of what is wrong with the other painting than if I simply told you what was wrong with it. And this was the Jesus way. When we read the Gospels closely, despite Rich throwing in a couple verses there, out of context. <laughs> Just read the Bible. That's right. Everybody's reading the Bible. Just read that Bible. So, Jesus walked among us as a perfect human being. Perfect. He demonstrated with sharp clarity and vibrant colors what sinlessness looks like. He loved with great sacrifice. He forgave his enemies, even as they were crucifying him. He lived altruistically without any selfishness. Even his own family would come and say, you're doing too much. You need to take time for yourself. He ignored that wonderful 20th first century advice. He was the definition of grace and mercy. His morals and ethics towered above even those of the religious elite. He spent his whole life ministering to others, and when the time was right, he willingly died that others might live. And that truth completely exposed untruth in everyone he met. Sinners who got it right away came to him for forgiveness. The Gospels are filled with that beautiful story. Sinners who got it came and said, forgive me. And washed his feet. The religious elite. The self-righteous. Even they knew. They didn't come to him for forgiveness. They were much more content in their religiosity. Their self-righteousness. But they knew. He certainly pointed out their sin of self-righteousness. And he did a good job of it because they were the religious elite. They weren't those sinners that we often think of when we're talking about sinners. Those sins we often think of when we're talking about sin. They hated it so much that he was better than them that they actually sought to kill him eventually. Light exposes darkness perfectly. There is no other way to expose darkness than to just shine the light on. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Ian Thomas British author, the Holy Spirit is like a man with a lamp entering a dark and dirty room, and what you have learned to live with in the dark becomes repugnant in the light. I, it's not there, Ron? Oh, behold the lamp. There it is. Sorry, Ron. Thank you. The Holy Spirit is like a man with a lamp entering a dark and dirty room, and what you have learned to live with in the dark becomes repugnant in the light. This is in many ways the experience of Saul on the Damascus Road, is it not? The chief of sinners, and he met the light of Christ, and everything changed. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin by reminding us always of the light of Christ. By preaching to us the gospel always. By reminding us that just as our own righteousness will never get us saved, our own unrighteousness will never get us condemned. 
Because in Christ we are new creatures, and the Holy Spirit shows us what the new creature is like. And that grace alone makes us the new creature, and the sin in our lives is not consistent with that new creation. So instead, let's reach out to the power of grace that frees us and transforms us, and stop living in the sin that enslaves and kills us. And I want to make a side note, and I'm trying to go quick here because it's, it's late. Obviously, Sunday school is over. So I'll get to some more of my stuff next week. But I think it's very important to note something about the whole concept of conviction as a challenge. Because there are so many ways to define conviction that have nothing to do with the biblical understanding of conviction. We don't have time to dive deeply into it, but the human idea of conviction, of being busted and caught red-handed, being condemned and declared guilty, is not what conviction means in the New Testament. And the study of the New Testament word for conviction from Matthew through Revelation proves that out. Despite the fact that the NIV uses two verses that grossly, grossly misdefine conviction. And that's too bad, because I appreciate the NIV, and I think we should all use the NIV in our biblical libraries. But in those two cases, they have established an entire understanding of conviction for certain churches that has nothing to do with. The original word in the New Testament, and if you read closely the text, and I'm sorry, I'm sort of off my notes. And if you read closely John 16, and what the Holy Spirit's going to be doing, you get this. He is not here as a bookkeeper convicting us of small as sins individual. That's not his job and it shouldn't be our job. If we're not saved, he's convicting us of not believing. And if we are saved, he's convicting us to get back to believing. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and grace transforms us. Religion is about small as sins because religion is about behavior modification. And if you're into behavior modification, then Christianity is not that important. Because every religion is about behavior modification. Christianity is about life and death. All the time. Sin, capital S, in which our small s's are simply symptoms. That's what the gospel is about. Death into life. It's not about behavior modification. Behavior modification is simple. You can do it with animals. I have a dog. Unbelievable behavior modification when I'm around. When I'm not around, nope, she's a dog. We spend our time behavior modifying people. We're not changing them. We're taking them away from the very thing that will change them. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which takes us out of death into life. So in the New Testament, conviction, the work of the Holy Spirit has this idea behind it. Cautioning. Cautioning is a good thing. Warning. Teaching. Correction. Inviting. Showing a better way. How many of us as imperfect parents, when our children were little, needed to teach them certain things? Not things that made our lives easier, I mean real things about life. Like, please don't play with the hot stove. And please don't go in the fire. And so, my daughter at one point stumbled and she put her hand on our hot gas fire and it burned her hand. I didn't thrash her to within inches of her life. I used that as an opportunity to teach her and correct her. 
She learned to drive a couple years ago. Well, there were times I screamed, especially when she was about to pull up in front of someone. I screamed, but I didn't thrash her into within inches of her life. I warned her. I got her attention. And I said, honey, no, that's no, no, no. Left, right, left again. Then we pull out. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is teaching us about life, not death. Romans 8.1, think of it this way. Here's Paul. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just reading the Bible. Straight up. The Holy Spirit inspired St. Paul to write this. Why would then the Holy Spirit go around condemning us? The Holy Spirit inspired this truth. So why would he go against his own truth? We go against the Holy Spirit's truth. When we rip the Bible apart and put it into different pieces. There is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not condemning us. It's teaching us. It's showing us the light. Showing us the way we should go. Teaching us what Christ-likeness is. And then in Christ we are righteous. So we should live into the truth. We should live conscious of who we really are. Righteous in Christ. And we should not live sin conscious. We should be conscious of our life in Christ. And when we have people we love and we're really concerned about, that's what we should be doing in their lives. Reminding them of who they are in Christ. Hey, that's, that's not Christ's likeness. You're, you're living a lie. Live like Christ and live into the fact that we are. And so at Canaan, while it may seem we do not talk about sin, we're always talking about it. Always. Because we're always talking about the light of Christ and living like Christ. Ask Tito if I don't talk about sin. Tito spent eight years here and I've been waiting for him to leave. <laughs> no, I have. And he, he knows why. Tito's a big believer and he, I love him. He's my brother. He's a huge believer in killing enemies. That goes directly against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what do I talk about 90% of the time, Tito? Loving our enemies. And he's still there. And God bless him every now and then. He reminds me, keep preaching, brother. Almost there. I don't need to sit here and talk about the evil of hating your enemies. I just need to talk about the beauty of loving your enemies. Bring these stories of moms whose kids have been killed. And those moms hug the killers of their kids? Why, why do I need to talk about the evil of it? Everybody knows. If you're personally struggling with something in your life and you're not sure it's evil, let's have a conversation. But from the pulpit, in our friends' lives, in our families' lives, just show them Christ. Light exposes darkness. But here's what's more important and why we talk about it. And if I can get everyone to understand this, we talk here about the light of Christ because the light of Christ alone not only most fully exposes the darkness, but it offers the only freedom from the darkness. 
There is no other freedom from darkness than the light of Christ. None. None. See, man's condemnation and judgment might expose some of the darkness. It might. But, to be honest, if you ever really tried to expose darkness in someone's life, it usually ends up doing one of two things. It drives them further into it because they don't want to hear from you. Right? Because we're also a teenagers at heart. The second thing it does, it drives us into sin. Because we go against all those warnings from Paul and Jesus about Pharisees. And we're going to talk about this next week, but see, that's the thing about symptoms and the disease. We focus on the disease here, not the symptoms. Because you can change symptoms, but if you don't get to the disease, you're not doing any good. And the only thing that can cure the disease is the light of Christ. God's law can't even offer freedom from sin. Again, when we read the New Testament, God's law brings death, not freedom. So if God's law can't offer freedom from sin, why are we using it to try to free someone from sin? Unless maybe that's not what we do. Maybe that's not what we really want. Maybe the reason we like God's law so much is because any church that focuses on God's law focuses on laws being broken that that church is really good at not breaking. And people that focus on the law in other people's lives love to do it because it's not laws they're breaking. And what that allows when symptoms become the focus that allows us to feel really good about ourselves. And the whole time think we're living lives of light when we're as dark as the people we're pointing our fingers at. That's a bad place to be. I've learned as I've gotten older, when I start getting really upset about someone else's sin, small s, the first thing I start to do is say, oh boy God, what's in my life that I need to clean up? Getting upset about someone else's sins, 99% of the time, is you're hiding something in your own life that's driving you up a wall. Because the Holy Spirit is convicting you that that doesn't go with the light. If we want others to really be free, then why would we use any other method than the method of shining the light of Christ? And that leads nicely into the next question, which we're going to talk about next week. Sorry we've gone long today. Uh, you could blame Rich for that. <laughs> What's the purpose of the conviction of sin? And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What's the purpose of it? What's the purpose of it? Be thinking about that this week. What is the purpose of conviction of sin? And here's a hint. It's not about people... Modifying their behavior. It's not. In the end, I think we all want the same thing. We want to live free from sin and death and into light and life, right? And we want that for everybody. I think that's why we're here. I think. We're trying to live through the doubts and the darkness and the cracks. 
We want to follow Christ here and now. Well, St. Paul was clear that God's kindness leads to repentance. God's kindness leads to repentance. Leads to us changing our mind about God and truth and untruth. And Jesus' own life demonstrated that. So whatever we may think about the subject of helping others live into life, if God uses kindness, then perhaps we should too. Amen. We'll talk next week. Um, what time is it? I don't have a clock. Oh, it's quarter past. So we're going to... Uh, we're going to go right to the closing prayer. We're, we're not going to be able to listen to that song. Let's go right to the closing prayer together. Next week we'll be back. Let's stand and pray. It was great to praise you, sovereign God, for the acts of love by which you set us free. Unite us in Christ, bring us to peace. Through your Holy Ghost, burning us in flame, gentle as a dove. May you divide the resurrection, grace, love, and prayer, and be a voice to those who are not.